Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Survivor Stories series, our guest is Jessica Ingalls, a protective mother and domestic violence victim and survivor. In our conversation, Jessica describes the ways in which her abusive ex-husband has weaponized the courts against her to obtain custody of their daughter, despite her protective order against him, and her status as an eligible Crime Victims Compensation Bureau victim. Jessica shares with us the ways in which the courts have viewed her protective mother's status as a liability and used it to label her unfit to see her daughter, despite their own clear conflicts of interest that should have disqualified them from any decision-making or involvement in her case. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for being on our show. Thank you for having me. I want to start with your ex-husband, David. You mentioned in your YouTube videos that you met when you were 17 and you stated that he began grooming you then. Can you share with us how that happened and what you mean by that? I didn't recognize it at the time. I was very young. I didn't have a lot of guidance. And looking back now, after nearly 20 years, I realized that he was using coercive control strategies and what I've now learned is gaslighting to emotionally and mentally abuse me and then make me question myself and erode my self-esteem, broke my contacts and my friendships with my family and other people that were important to me, basically did exactly what we are warned to look out for. But when we're taught to look out for this kind of behavior, we're never told that it's somebody that we think we can trust, that we think we know, that we think is a friend that does this to us. And by the time we got married, just before I was 21, I had only a handful of friends. Many of my friends wouldn't come to our wedding. Um, Most of my family didn't come because he had broken my bond with them so severely that they didn't want to have anything to do with our marriage. Had your friends or family before your wedding shared with you their concerns, not necessarily about his divisive tactics between the two of you, you and your family or you and your friends, but more his behavior towards you expressing concerns about that? Unfortunately, our society is such that a lot of people will just ignore it and believe that it's not their business to speak up. And the few friends that ever brought anything up were, I'm sure, probably worried about offending me or upsetting me. And they were very vague. But I really, really, really wish that somebody had been direct with me and said, look, here is what he's doing. This is actually happening and it's happening to you. Because I was blind to it. I was so deep in. I thought that that's how relationships were. I didn't have anything else to base it off of. And I didn't even realize I was being groomed and then abused. Well, I, I ask that not because there, there's actually just yesterday, there was a uh, post on Twitter that I saw 
about how abusers are just as good as grooming allies as they are at grooming victims. So very often, um, and most of the time, I would say with the people that I've spoken with, including myself, friends and family have been groomed as well. And so they're not even reliable as a source of intervention. I don't think he ever really took the time to groom anyone that I had a connection with. He does have a significant number of family members and friends and allies. I mean, even since we've separated in the last seven years and I've had these restraining orders, he's amassed an online army of people, people who have never met me, many of which have never met him. But they are friends on Facebook and they comment on his social media posts and they encourage him and praise him and tell him what a good man and a good father he is. So he's definitely been selective of the people he's chosen to groom and the people that he's chosen to bring on as allies. His strategy in the beginning was more to isolate me than it was to convince anybody that I was close with that he was, you know, quote unquote, the good guy. And at the point that you were getting married, had you any internal sort of red flags that you that were present that maybe you were or any instinct that this was not okay? I think I had a little bit, but I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. I didn't have any close family anymore. I didn't have any friends that were close enough that I felt really understood what was going on that I could be honest with. When you did marry him, at what point did, after you married him, at what point did the abuse manifest itself in your relationship and in what ways did they do so? Almost immediately. We were married in August and by December of the same year, he had attacked me physically in our home, sat on my chest, put his hands around my neck and told me he was going to kill me. I was able to wiggle away and run into another room where he caught me again and again wrapped his arms around my neck and strangled me until I passed out. When I came to, there were two police officers standing over me and they threatened to take me to jail if I kept fighting with him. Who had, I guess he had called the police? Yes. And what happened after that? How many? They put, they put me in handcuffs that day and they told me they were going to take to jail. They had found me passed out with scratch marks around my neck and they threatened me because he was the one who had called. And there were many other instances like that over the next several years, including me having to flee our home and go to a secure location that had a security gate and patrol guards around it. And even then, he would circle the compound where I was staying and call the cops to try to get them to come infiltrate the compound where I I had friends that were living there that worked on the grounds. And it was a a private estate where my friends were um, maintenance and groundskeepers. And so I was able to stay there with them for a few nights until he had calmed down enough that I wasn't scared that he was going to kill me. The last time that... He attacked me was the day I told him I wanted a divorce in 2012. And he chased me through the house, threw things at me, 
when he finally got his arms around me, he again tried to choke me. And it was only when I finally pressed my, we were in a hallway, when I pressed my feet up against the opposite side of the hallway and pressed him between my back and the wall behind us, he finally let go and I was able to run to a to one of our cars and locked myself in the car. And he came and beat on the windows and the windshield of the car and told me he was going to kill me. When I called the police, they didn't show up until almost 12 hours later and basically told him, hey, you need to calm down. You can't be telling her things like that. And then they left. And at that point, you had a daughter with David already? My daughter was about 16 months old when that happened. How long was it from when you married David until you left him and you filed for divorce, that, that process of leaving? Uh, it was just under six years. It was from 2000 to 2006 to 2012. And what were some of the barriers that kept you from being able to leave? Fear was a big one. Not knowing what he was going to do to me if I tried to leave. He didn't work for most of our marriage, but he used his assertiveness over me, his control over me to make me feel like I was responsible to care for him. So even when I did leave, I told him, you know, I've got money set aside to buy you a car. I'm going to pay your first couple of months of rent at an apartment. I can pay your cell phone bill for a while. Even though he had never provided for me or for our daughter, this is still the amount of control he had over me. Even when I realized that if I was going to continue to live, I couldn't be with him because he would kill me. It was such an unimaginable life that looking back on it, I can't even believe that it happened to me. And I have firsthand memories and notes that I'd written to myself and police reports to look back on this. And it still feels, I, I still ask myself how I let it happen. I still, I, like a lot of women, I blame myself and I don't know how I let it go so far for so long. Do you recognize that that's not your voice that's speaking, but it's his voice or society's voice and that it's not your fault? I do. I recognize the rational part of me now recognizes that. But the battered part of me still internally inquires. You know, why did I let this happen? Why did and I ask, why did it happen to me? I was strong and independent and did well in school involved in extracurricular activities all throughout high school and had ambitions to go to college. And I don't know, I still, to this day, I can't understand exactly what it is that he did that made all that go away and turned me from a bright, motivated, moving forward. I'm guessing that part of the barriers that you faced were beyond fear was the, the threats. Um, I've myself and many survivors that have been on the show have talked about the threat of by the abuser of taking the children away. And of ultimately, that's what he did. But is that something that he articulated as well? I 
didn't believe that he could. I thought that all the protective laws meant that when we did finally leave, that she would be safe from him. And kind of the last straw was when he got mad at me when I left the house one day to go to work and I had to work out of town overnight. And he dropped her down a flight of stairs. And he sent me a bunch of threatening text messages that he was going to do it. And then even after he did it, but I was traveling and I didn't have cell phone service. I didn't get the text messages until the following day. And from that point on for the next about four months, every single day was focused on how to get her and get away from him and get to a safe, stable place that we wouldn't have to worry about him hurting us. It never occurred to me that the court would turn on me and give my daughter to a violent abuser. It never even occurred to me. So was that when you sought an order of protection? Yes, the day after he attacked me when I told him I wanted a divorce, I went to the domestic violence center in my county and they helped me file for a domestic violence protection order. It was granted, and in the emergency orders, I was given sole custody with no contact with him. And I just, even the first several months of the restraining order, he became belligerent in the courtroom, and when he came back to where we had been living together to get his things, he spent his entire opportunity there, even with a police officer present, yelling at me, telling, abusing me, verbally abusing me, threatening me. All of these things, I'm guessing, were part of your protective order that they, that he was forbidden to engage in these acts. Yes. Yes. It's part of the boilerplate language in domestic violence protection orders in California, that the restrained party is not allowed to harass, attack, threaten, abuse verbally, physically, sexually, or otherwise the protected parties. But even with a police officer there, he didn't do anything to enforce the order. So this was the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department? Yes. And then I understand that your ex-husband also threatened to kidnap your daughter and you reported that. Was that to the DA's office then? I made multiple police reports to the sheriff's office. And honestly, the first communication I ever got from the district attorney's office that was more than just a letter saying you've been identified as a victim wasn't until 2014. Nobody at the domestic violence center or at any point in the court ever explained to me that um, that I could contact the DA or that I had any rights as a victim. Just to get some context on Siskiyou County, you, you uh, this is a county in California. Is it in the northern or southern California? Very far northern. It borders Oregon. Okay. And is it a small population? That So Siskiyou County is a very large county by area, but a very small county by population. And there's fewer than 60,000 people living there. The county seat is Wairika, and there's less than 7,500 people living there. And that's the largest community in the entire county. 
One of the problems that I understand that's come up in your case again and again is the sort of cronyism and nepotistic nature of all of the relationships, partly due to the small size of the county where one person shows up in one area of your life. And in theory, it would be a conflict of interest to participate in another area of your life, but doesn't recuse himself or herself. Is that right? That's exactly right. The sheriff's department training officer has been friends with my ex-husband since they went to high school together. And because he's employed by the sheriff's department, he's privy to everything that goes on, including calls. So there were times when I had to call for police and he would intervene and no officer would respond. He even went so far as to make an appearance on scene when a California Highway Patrol team pulled over my ex for stalking me for several hours after a court date. And the California Highway Patrolman had told me that it was a clear and obvious violation of the protective orders that were in place. They told me he's gonna go to jail. We're arranging for a tow truck to come get his vehicle. And as soon as the call for the tow truck hit the radio, his friend with the sheriff's department, who is not even a patrolman, who was a trainer, was on site and instructing the highway patrol not to enforce the protective order. And they let him go. Your ex-husband's friend, the trainer in the sheriff's department, in theory, isn't he ranked lower than the California highway patrolman? I don't know if there's any correlation between agencies, but he prevented another law enforcement agency from enforcing a protective order. And he did it again in a different jurisdiction in Shasta County when I had to move away from the home that my daughter and I had been living in in Siskiyou County about 70 miles to the south to stay away from him because he was coming to our house and parking across the street from our door and watching us all day and night, following me to my college classes and these kinds of things. And the Siskiyou County sheriffs had over and over demonstrated to me that they would not respond or do anything about these violations of the protection order. So we moved to the next county. And one of the times that he showed up at our house in the next county, and I called the Shasta County Sheriff's Department, again, a deputy showed up on scene, said, yep, he's in clear violation of the protective order. He's not supposed to be within 100 yards of you or your home. We're going to go get him. He's going to go to jail. And then I never heard back. So... I called the sheriff's office, the reference office the next day to find out what happened. And they said, well, they determined there was no violation of the protection order. So I asked for a copy of the report. And in the report that the Shasta County Sheriff's Department issued, it said that they contacted the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Office and that they were instructed not to enforce the protective order. If the police report clearly says that there was a refusal to enforce Doesn't that imply that there was a violation of the protective order? The report by itself, I don't think would indicate that there was a violation. But the fact that the officer told me that, yeah, I saw him driving down your street, that is a violation of the protective order because he's supposed to be 100 yards away from you and your home indicates that there was a violation. 
And so wouldn't that subject the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department to violations in federal law? If there was anybody to call and report it to, I'm sure it would be. But I tried to contact supervisors with both sheriff's offices, and I contacted the attorney general's office and the California Department of Justice. And everybody pretty much gave me the same answer. That's not our job. It's not our problem. Did you contact the senators? I'm guessing yes, in your state. Yes. In fact, in March of this year, I I traveled to Sacramento with another mother from Siskiyou County, whose daughter is also being abused by a man that she's not supposed to be living with, according to the state laws. And we met with over 25 state legislators, state senators and state assembly members, and with Senator Kamala Harris's office. What was their response? Uh, For the most part, everybody was really sympathetic and sorry and referred us to the CJP, which didn't do any good. And two of the legislators said that they would make a referral to the attorney general's office. But follow up on any of that has basically led to their staff saying, sorry, there's nothing more we can do. What's the CJP? The... um, Commission on Judicial Performance, and Kathleen Russell would be a really knowledgeable expert on all the details of the goings-on with them, but in a nutshell, several years ago, there were enough complaints going to the California State Auditor's Office about the CJP not investigating um, complaints of judicial misconduct that the Auditor's Office was ordered by the legislature, the state legislature, to perform an audit of the CJP to determine if they were treating complaints against judges appropriately. And over a protracted period of litigation and eventually the legislation um, telling the CJP that if you don't allow the auditor to audit your files, we're going to withhold a substantial portion of your budget. And finally, the CJP allowed the auditor to conduct an audit of their files. And the auditor's report was released in April of 2019, basically indicated that the CJP is so poor in performance that the auditor recommends changes to the state constitution in order to require the CJP to do their job. Because while they're not doing what they were chartered to do, there's technically no law ordering them to do their jobs. I'm guessing this is probably the case across the country, too. Um, but but, but, but the, uh, the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department not enforcing a protective order, that's less about judge judicial misconduct. And right. it, it, it seems no, like... There's, there is no one to report police to in California. I see. Okay, so let's let's get back to the uh, protective order. So at some point, your ex-husband actually pled guilty to violating the protective order. What prompted him to do that? Did he get caught with his um, red-handed, or uh, what, did he voluntarily uh, do that? Shortly after the restraining order was issued in 2012, he violated it when he snuck up to my home Now, this this was in June in California. The weather was quite fair, but he was wearing 
a black beanie over his head and his face, black gloves, and a black coat. He snuck up to my daughter's bedroom window, and I had had a male cousin staying with me for a couple of weeks because he knew that I was in danger and that I had separated from my violent husband recently. And he just happened to be outside at 10 o'clock at night. I think he was feeding the dog or something and noticed my ex-husband crouched below my daughter's bedroom window. He came in and reported to me what he had seen, and I immediately called 911. The sheriff deputy who responded to the call only did so by phone call. He never actually showed up on site. And he telephoned my ex-husband while he was still on the property, and my ex-husband admitted to him on the phone that he was there. And so that was basically the entire amount of evidence that they had, and they used that to um, get him to agree to a, um, uh, not a settlement, what do they call, call it? In a stipulation? When, um, a plea bargain. Mm-hmm. They got him to agree to a plea bargain. They had brought him initially on charges of battery from a week earlier when I had called when he had attacked me and strangled me. And they had also levied charges for violating the protective order. I was never made aware that they were engaging in a plea bargain with him. I was never made aware that they were dropping the battery charges. But in January of 2013, he pled guilty to violating the protection order. And at that time, the criminal protective order had already been in place for several months. And the district attorney's office asked that 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 criminal protective order be extended from a three-year to a five-year and the judge did grant that five-year-long criminal protective order. But unfortunately, because the police refused to enforce it, it didn't offer any additional safety or security for me and my daughter. How did you come to be involved with the Crime Victims Compensation Bureau? Uh, After we moved to the next county south, about 70 miles away, my daughter and I were having a hard time sleeping. We were both having hunger and dietary issues and we were suffering the effects of post-traumatic stress. So we enrolled in trauma therapy and she had her, she was only two and a half, three years old. So she would see a child's therapist and I was seeing, you know, a regular trauma therapist myself. And after a few sessions, I received a letter in the mail from the Crime Victims Compensation Bureau telling me that I had been approved for crime victim benefits. And the person that they said referred my case to them was the therapist I had been seeing. So at our next session, I asked her what it was and what it meant. And she explained to me that the level of trauma that we had experienced in the ongoing crimes against us made us basically exactly the kinds of crime victims that are supposed to be receiving help through that program. And she helped me go through the paperwork and explained to me a little bit about how the program worked and what kinds of things they'll reimburse you for, including relocation benefits. And after a few more weeks, I had some more questions and I really still wasn't 100% sure what this all meant because it was a completely foreign idea to me. It had never occurred to me that anybody would help us as victims because no one to this point ever had and I called the office in Sacramento who explained to me that 
considering the ongoing police reports that we were making and no new charges are being brought against him, that we should very seriously consider and start making plans to relocate. And I said, well, I don't have any idea how I, I would even go about that. And they said, well, continue, considering the level of abuse and the escalation that you're seeing, go far. And when the time came that we knew we weren't safe in California anymore, we had to leave the only state and the only community that we had ever known. I had to leave my family and everyone I had ever gone to school with, my entire network, every employer I'd ever had, my entire life, I had to pack up and leave behind for our safety. Was this kind of like witness protection where you had to leave and but not tell anybody where you were going? They did send us a list of recommendations for safety planning, including not telling anybody where you were or that you were leaving. Um, they told us if we had a legal standing to change our names, that we should consider it, that we needed to be careful about what private information we put on the internet or allowed to be put in any public database. Um, they encouraged us to reach out to domestic violence centers at our new location and have them help us with safety planning, which we did. And we did everything that we were told to do in order to stay safe. We were allowed to enroll in the address confidentiality program in our new home. So even the county records don't reflect our name and address. We have to take ACP cards with us everywhere we go, showing what our confidential address is. And ordinarily, when you go to the bank and you sign up for a new bank account, you just write down your address. Well, it's a little bit different, and it's very uncomfortable when you have to explain to your bank, to your credit card companies, to all your creditors, to your mortgager, to your insurance company, to your catalog subscriptions, that they can only send it to a confidential address and that you can't give out your home address. And inevitably, people want to know why. And then you have to explain to them that you're a victim of violent crime. And that by itself is very difficult, as you could imagine. It's hard enough being a survivor and having to leave your entire life behind, but then to have to admit to everyone you come in contact with what's happened to you. I'm grateful for the assistance that we did receive. I'm grateful that there is a confidential address program, but it's still very hard to live with. I imagine your current husband must have had difficulty as well in dealing in, in, in sharing this with his employer. And is that, was that right? Yes. Um, my new husband is also in the address confidentiality program, and he's a protected party on our current restraining orders, as is our son, because threats were made against both my husband and our son by my ex-husband. His mother has been contacted and harassed. My new mother-in-law has been harassed. We've all been subjected to a multitude of nasty messages and threats on the internet through Facebook, through YouTube, emails, Instagram. We've had to really curb 
our behavior in order to stay safe from him and this army, this internet army that he's amassed and instructed to find us and terrorize us. And it hasn't been easy and sometimes it feels very lonely, but my husband has been very understanding and very supportive. But I understand that you're still, you and your daughter are still receiving trauma therapy. My daughter's not anymore. Oh, that's right. In January of this year, he came to our new home state and he took her and he's been holding her in California, basically holding her hostage until the restraining orders are dismissed because he has, he wants to have unlimited access to me. And he's put so much in writing and filed that statement with the court in California and indicated that he's not going to let me see her or talk to her until he has unlimited access to me. So just to back up a little, in your new state, you filed a petition or you, re- you renewed your, you tried to renew your order of protection. Is that right? The criminal protective order that was issued out of California expired in early 2018. So at the end of 2017, we made the decision to seek new domestic violence protection orders in our new home state before the California order expired. Because although the California order had never been enforced, at least it was something. And if it expired and we had absolutely nothing, then there would be absolutely nothing to stop him from tracking us down and coming to our house and killing us, as he had threatened to do many, many, many times. So our new home state did issue those protective orders at the end of 2017. And the judge basically read him the riot act. I mean, he was there. It was a contested hearing. He had ample opportunity to present and call witnesses just the way anybody does any hearing at all and or any just the way anybody is supposed to be able to do at any hearing at all and the court described his abuse of us as shocking and extreme she said something along the, the judge said something along the lines of uh, never having seen the sheer volume of well-documented ongoing abuse as she had seen in our case. So he went back to California to the family law judge in California and got that judge to or to give him sole custody again, even after both of my kids and I had received new domestic violence protection orders after a contested hearing. So that was controversial because in theory, California had not been identified as the state with jurisdiction. Washington took emergency jurisdiction because they found that he had um, misdirected my mail and failed to serve me with any notices of ongoing hearings at his request in California. He admitted to the court in our new home state that he had not served me with any of his motions. And the court here found that he had Um, stolen my mail, essentially. So even if the court had mailed me anything to try to let me know that there were ongoing hearings, I wouldn't have ever gotten it because he was stealing my mail. So even though another state had taken emergency jurisdiction, somehow he was allowed in California to file this order and 
um, I, if I'm not mistaken, the judge that made that granted him that both the jurisdiction as well as the order, the temporary order, was someone with a conflict of interest as well. No, the in 2018, when Judge Laura Masanaga awarded him sole custody again, she violated the Violence Against Women Act, which requires to give full faith and credit to protective orders issued from any other jurisdiction. And under California law, a domestic violence protection order being issued against a person indicates that there has been a finding of domestic violence and other additional laws in California state that a person who has committed domestic violence is not allowed to have to be of a child. But this judge chose to completely ignore all those protective laws and order a seven-year-old girl into the control of a man that she didn't even know who was very violent and very dangerous and who had assaulted other women and their children. The judge who had a conflict of interest took the bench or took over presiding on this case in January of 2019. And he is ineligible to sit on this case because in California, if there is an appearance of um, impropriety, the judge is to be automatically disqualified. Well, the matter of impropriety in this case is that when this judge was a private party attorney, he represented a third party in a civil case against me and represented that party again in a civil case against my ex-husband. So he's essentially been double disqualified because there's a major conflict of interest when an attorney who has held a case against you on behalf of another party is now the judge presiding over your family law case. And to add salt to the wound, in the case where Judge John Lawrence was a private practice attorney representing a third party against me, he lost the case. And when he lost, I was in pro per, and it upset him and offended his ego very greatly that I, an unwitting, lowly civilian without a law degree, should win in my case, he came to my place of business and he physically attacked me. And I had to call the police who at that time they did respond and they came and they took a report. It was the Wairika Police Department. But when I found out that he had selected himself to preside over my family law case earlier this year, I went back to the Wairika Police Department to pull a copy of that police report. And instead they issued me a statement that said that they had destroyed the record. So I went through all the hoops that I had to under the letter of the law to give notice and provide adequate service to all the parties involved that I was objecting to John Lawrence presiding over my case any further because of this conflict of interest. And I cited the law that states that he's ineligible to serve. And he took it upon him to strike it from the record and then issued a statement to me by mail stating that he didn't feel I had... Uh, filed my paperwork correctly, or I hadn't done it in a timely fashion, and that he was just throwing the whole thing away and struck it from the record. Obviously, you're focused on your family law case right now, but given that he's such a prominent part of it, and there's this huge, he not only physically attacked you, but there was a police report 
um, documenting it, which is now missing. Does he, do you know if he denies it? Was there ever any conversation during or colloquy during your family law cases where you've referenced this conflict of interest and he didn't deny that he was um, involved in, you know, these other civil cases and, he, and his physical attack against you? Did he, was there other proof, in other words? No. Um, the first time that I was to appear in family court again this year after my daughter was taken, he removed the commissioner that had been sitting. And I was the only case left to be called. And he came and took the bench while I was sitting in the audience with a representative from the Domestic Violence Center. And he did not allow the hearing to proceed. He said, I understand you may not be happy about me hearing your case, but I'm not going to allow your motion. I'm denying your motion, and I'm not going to allow a hearing. And I asked him from the plaintiff's table while he remained on the bench why he was not allowing me to proceed. And he said, because you already filed a motion, and a different judge already denied it. Which was untrue. Well, I had filed a motion a few days earlier, and the first judge who saw it had recused herself, and she denied my motion, even though she had recused herself and was never supposed to have seen anything in my file. So in so theory, you can't, you, if she were to recuse herself, she can't rule on that motion, so the motion was still outstanding. It should have been. So I called the clerk and alerted them that, that judge was not supposed to be allowed to rule on any motions in my case because she had recused herself. And the clerk said, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, well, I'll give it to somebody else. Well, two hours later, the new judge that she had handed it to had written verbatim exactly what the first judge had written and in the exact same part of the sheet that the first judge had written it. And in two hours, he couldn't have possibly taken the time to review a case that's been going on since 2012. So even though the second judge had the legal authority to review the case and make a ruling, all he did was rubber stamp what the previous judge had written. And that judge shouldn't have ever been, her ruling shouldn't have been presented to the second judge because she had recused herself and she shouldn't have ever had access to it in the first place, let alone making rulings and then making recommendations to the following judge on how he should rule also. So... After appearing before this judge, Judge Lawrence, what were the events that led to your ex-husband basically abducting your daughter? He had already taken her at this point. Um, my appeal has been pending since October of 2018, but he didn't actually take her until January 4th. In of 2019? November, yes. In November... My domestic violence protection order was due to be renewed. So I went to court with all my paperwork and a representative from the YWCA, an advocate from the YWCA. And the first hearing was rescheduled to two weeks later. So two weeks later, I came back again. Sat and waited with the advocate for hours and hours, and it was postponed again. So now we were into December, and the order had been extended each of these times so it had never expired or lapsed 
But by the time they finally got around to scheduling it, my ex-husband had hired a criminal defense attorney in our new home state to defend him against new criminal charges for violating the new state's protective orders. And that defense attorney helped him get a writ of habeas corpus signed by a pro tem commissioner, not a judge, not anyone familiar with the restraining order case, but a pro tem commissioner. And a writ of habeas corpus essentially required me to produce my daughter or go to jail. So my daughter was sent to a safe house with my son and my husband. And she stayed at the safe house for 17 days while I was in a county jail without any criminal charges, without the right to an attorney, without any rights guaranteed to a criminal defendant because there were no criminal charges levied against me. I missed Christmas with my kids. I missed New Year's. And when my ex-husband's attorney had harassed my husband and his family and our neighbors to the point that they had applied so much pressure to him that he was so scared and he didn't know what else to do, he surrendered my daughter. And I only had 10 minutes to say goodbye to her before a violent multi-time offender took her and relocated her to a place that she'd never lived before with people she didn't know without any safety, without the benefit of her education or her trauma therapy. My daughter had a whole life. She was eight years old. She was taking music lessons. She lived next door to her best friend. She'd been at the same school her entire education and he took her away from all of it. And he's been holding her in California in complete isolation since January 5th of 2019. And the court order doesn't give you any parenting rights, is that right? Or it's up to his discretion? It's up to his discretion whether I get any supervised visits or not. He won't let me speak to her. And even if I traveled all the way to California and paid the fees... He still doesn't have to show up to let me have my visit with <laughs> And after consulting with our trauma therapists and all of our safety planners, we determined that it's simply not safe for him to know when and where I'm going to be because he's just made too many threats to kill us. Do you have any idea how your daughter is doing? No. <laughs> I called the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Office and asked them to do a welfare check earlier this year. A week after I called, the deputy called me back and said, I can't find her and I'm not going to look. So I called Congressman Doug LaMalfa's office and I told them what was going on. Because they have an office, a branch office, um, satellite office close to where Siskiyou County is. And a week after that, I got a call back from the deputy that said that he had talked to a little girl that he said was my daughter at school. And that she hated school, but she was clean and said that she had eaten recently. And as far as he was concerned, that she was fine. Now, this is the same sheriff's office where my ex-husband has friends who have interfered in other calls to police for help. It took him two weeks to come up with this story. 
And I don't believe that he ever did speak to my daughter because my daughter loved school. She was upset when there were three-day weekends and she had to miss a Monday or a Friday. That's how much she loved school. She loved going and seeing other little kids. She loved impressing her teachers and learning new things. I asked him if he could provide any other evidence that he had actually spoken to my daughter, and he said no and hung up on me. So what's the status of your legal case now? I, I understand that you reached out to Joan Meyer of Domestic Violence Legal Empowerment Appeals Project, and they helped you with an appeal? Yes. Yes, DV Leap has been um, orchestrating and funding my appeal um, since October. They did find a San Francisco Bay Area law firm to represent me in the appeal, which is still pending. I have filed multiple motions at the trial court to try to get new orders for her to come home, assuming she's still alive. And even though I've shown the court the California law that prohibits them from requiring me to pay a filing fee because I'm a protected party of a domestic violence protection order. They still required me to pay hundreds of dollars in filing fees. The first three or four times I paid the fees, they refused to let me have a hearing. They took the money, wrote refused or denied. In fact, the last time that I was due to appear, I got a call from the judge's clerk that morning telling me that they had vacated my court date. And I asked, how could they have done that? We haven't had a hearing yet. And the court told me, well, he did it. So it must be legal. Most recently, just a few weeks ago, you know, we're recording in the beginning of September. So in the middle of August, I filed another motion. They pushed it out for two months even though it's supposed to be heard in a timely manner. And I'm trying to organize a court watch and get as many state legislators and members of the Judicial Council and possibly even the director from the CJP to attend the court date in October. And I imagine one of two things will happen. One, the judge will see that people are paying attention and that his actions will make it back to the ears of people who potentially could do something about it. And he'll do what he should have done in January the first time I filed and follow the letter of the law and allow my daughter to come home to her safe, stable environment again. Or he'll keep following in the same footsteps that he has been, in the same footsteps that Laura Masanaga passed in. And he'll deny my motion and my daughter will remain in the control of a violent, multi-time abuser but hopefully enough people will be in the courtroom watching and they'll be enraged enough that they'll go back to Sacramento and do something to take immediate action and either pass new legislation or start creating a new body of enforcement or something to keep this from happening because it's happening. I mean, not only across the country, but the number of parents that I've met in California that have suffered similar abuses without cause is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's not just a domestic problem, it's an international problem. And have you thought, because of Joan Meyer's research that just came out, actually she just published it yesterday, I saw on a Twitter, on a, on a Twitter feed, on her Twitter feed, it's available now, and so understanding that her research exposes 
a gender bias towards not just survivors who are women, but just mothers in general that I've come across, and that there's scientific evidence of this, especially if there are individuals such as guardians at litem or custody evaluators who are added as additional players into the mix, that there's three to six times greater likelihood that a protective mother making a claim of abuse, child abuse, or child sexual abuse will lose custody to her abuser. These appear to be discriminatory practices that are being carried out by officials across the country in positions who are required by law to uphold the law and not engage in discrimination. So what are your thoughts about the possibility of some sort of class action federal lawsuit? Sign me up. <laughs> I, will rattle, I will rattle the sabers. I will be able to find and provide an extraordinary list of others who would be eligible to join it also. Have you brought this up to the elected officials in your state when you met with those 25 officials that this was discriminatory? We, we did. We, dem- we brought little handouts with us, the other mother and I that attended, and we even had a nurse that sat in on a, sat in on a couple of our meetings with us in support of our requests of the legislators and explain to them that it's discriminate, discrimination against the victims to be pulling people out and blaming them for their abuse and blaming their attempt to achieve safety and classifying it and, and characterizing it as bad parenting and abuse of the child when all we're trying to do is keep our children safe is absolutely discrimination. And we did bring that up to them. And really, it was a, a large matter of passing the buck. We heard excuses ranging from, you know, contact the CJP to, um, you know, write to your congressman to, you know, well, that's the, the judicial branch and we're the legislative branch and our powers are separate, so we can't do anything about it. I heard that one more times than I care to recall. Well, they can certainly pass bills to preempt the misuse of laws in the court system or the legal or the criminal justice system against survivors through implementing consequences for not adhering to those laws. A lot of those laws do exist, but there's no enforcement of them. And there's no enforcement agency or the enforcement agency that does exist is not required to do their job. So I see that as another opportunity for conversations about reforming and updating the the laws. Right. And I think it's, and I, I haven't fully vetted this theory, but I think it's probably going to have to be a federal action and a federal enforcement agency. But I imagine the amount of staff and funding needed to really address this and make an actual impact is something beyond what our country can bear right now, just because of the amount of discrimination and judicial impropriety that's going on. For all the complaints that would flood into such an enforcement agency, they wouldn't be able to accomplish even a fraction of the work that needed to be done in any 
reasonable amount of time. And in the meantime, children are dying because of a judge's discrimination and demented ideas of what a victim and a woman and a child should be and what their roles ought to be. Yes, it is true that even Congress and congressional oversight committees are having challenges having their subpoenas enforced um, and calling witnesses and having to go through the legal system. And and so I, I, it seems like this would not be a time definitely for survivors to be able to rely on the legal system for accountability. But hopefully this conversation that we're having and the information that we're going to be sharing from the interview will bring more people who are experiencing similar challenges to come to us for connection and potentially for strategizing about what next to do together. I certainly hope so. What's the timeline for you to expect that there's going to be a decision on your case? On the appeal, yes. it can take years. So am I to understand that the worst case scenario is that you wouldn't be able to see your daughter during that period of time? That's exactly right. Even while there's an appeal, isn't there an opportunity for you to file a change of circumstance, a new motion to request? Yes, and I've, been, I've been doing that. That's what my motions earlier this year were for, and that's what my more recent motion has been for as well. Judge Lawrence even tried to tell me that he didn't know if he was allowed to make new rulings on this case while it was pending appeal. Which we know, of, of course, is ridiculous. It's yes, not, not but true. he actually said that. That's how far they're willing to go to discriminate and abuse victims. Are there any final words that you'd like to share with listeners regarding what they can do better to help support survivors to help support you and your daughter really along the hashtag of upstander tips that I use to help bring attention to believing survivors and you know the abuser strategies and tactics that we experience and bringing awareness to all of that is there anything that you'd like to share and and suggest I guess I would start with believe a victim when they tell you that they've been hurt or if they're afraid, especially children. We see in the news daily a story of a child who was afraid of one of their parents or their guardian because they've been abused. And sometimes teachers don't believe them. Sometimes their doctors don't believe them. But most often the judges don't believe them. And it's very, very disheartening to a victim when they have no support outside of court and then to go stand in front of a judge and be told that they're not believed. And the only thing the rest of us can do is provide that support, believe them. Don't just assume that they're being dramatic. Don't believe that because they're strong, they couldn't possibly be abused or that their personality makes them unable or unlikely to be abused because it happens all the time to all kinds of people. Believe victims would be my recommendation. Please 
Let us know. Keep us up to date about what's happening in your case. Um, if you need us to sign petitions or share news around meetings that you're going to be going to, any of that, let feel free to reach out and we're happy to make sure that the listeners and your audience as well are connected and, and, and be able to support you as much as we can. I have engaged in a letter writing campaign to the attorney general's office and a bunch of media outlets and all the legislators that I met with in California. I think there's about 72 people on my list so far. And I do have a small GoFundMe account set up to help pay for that campaign. And I am organizing a court watch in early October. So we'll definitely share your GoFundMe link then. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Jessica. And I wish you and your family the best of luck. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.